Hi and welcome to the podcast, You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is with D.A. Carter, an old friend and colleague of mine. Uh, We had a really lovely conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it with him. It's a crossover with um, with his podcast, So there's a bit of um, me interviewing him and a bit of him interviewing me, but we talked about place and stuff and legitimizing art and subcultures and uh, hugs and Burning Man and all sorts of things. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. It's really nice to catch up with Dave and you get to listen in on our catch-up as well as, I think, a really interesting conversation. Check out D.A. Carter's Working It Out, which is a YouTube channel and a podcast. Speaking of which, if you enjoyed listening to my brother, Henry Fraser, last week on man-mumming, he has just done the first in what I hope will be a series of uh, YouTube videos and possibly a podcast emerging from that. Uh, Look him up on Twitter at Henry Fraser Echo, E-C-H-O, Um, And you can see him rambling onto his phone while having a rest from his uh, looking after daughter duties. It's, I think, a really nice step for Hen because he does tend to put things off because he's a perfectionist. So seeing seeing him just ramble onto his phone as the first step in probably a series, I think, is a great thing that should be encouraged. So if you have uh, five to eight minutes, go check that out on YouTube. Uh, if you are in Sydney, I'm doing a gig with Dave Carter on the uh, on the 23rd of November, and it's in a secret warehouse. And you go to papafire.com, p-a-p-a-f-i-r-e.com, and then you get tickets, and it will tell it will tell you where it is. It's near Sydenham Station in Marrickville. So if you are in Sydney and want to go to an underground warehouse gig that D.A. Carter has talked me into. Um, that's there. I will also be in Canberra on the 20th of November. Uh, follow my Twitter for details of that at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Um, and it'll be also up on my Facebook. I need to share those ticket links, but I will do that, uh, on those forums. I'm also in Port Kembla on the 16th of November. And if you are in Port Kembla or nearby to there, um, you you should come along. The gig is called the All Good November. It's All Good is the gig. It's called All Good. It's at the Vault in Port Kembla uh, on the sixteenth of November at six p.m. And other than that, I will be at the Manly Boat Shed on Monday, the eleventh of November, and in Oatley on Wednesday, the thirteenth of November. So I think those are all the gigs I'm doing in Sydney and surrounding boroughs. Um, coming up if you are not in Sydney or anywhere near Sydney of course my shows I have two full shows available on my Patreon Um, at the $5 subscription level you get access to both of those shows you can just sign up for the month and then uh, at the end of the month unsign up it's quite easy to do just put a reminder in your calendar I remind you to remind yourself um, so it's okay and uh you then you can or you can go off the platform entirely or you know drop the money there's you know how patreon works if you don't know how patreon works it's where you uh you you are my patron you give me a certain amount of money um and then you get some stuff and also you get the satisfaction of knowing that you are genuinely what makes my career possible and i 
I thank you every week on the podcast because it is um, it's what makes what I do um, doable in a very, very real sense, both kind of emotionally and financially. Uh, so thank you to all my patrons. Email me at alicerfraser at gmail.com if you want to have a chat or on the Patreon messaging. There's a thing in the app or on the website that you can do that there and or on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. If you can't or don't want to support the podcast financially, then tell a friend about it or tweet about it or if there's something that you like about it um, on any given week, uh, share that that quote or something <laughs> along those lines. It is now 10.30pm and I am still jet-lagged. I've been in Australia for a week and for some reason it's hitting me hard this time round. So you can probably tell from my rambling that I am jet-lagged. Uh, I will stop talking now and let you get on with listening to the podcast. It's my conversation with D.A. Carter and I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. Alice, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. You're most you're most welcome. That Wait, mic- I mean, I mean. Okay, first of all, who? How are we going to do this? Is it going to be me doing my intro or you doing your intro? Let's you do. Shared. Yeah, well, we are drinking tea. Yes. So, so I think I would say, if it were my show, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, "Hi, welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you, and what are you drinking?" Uh, my name is D. A. Carter, and I'm drinking. A um, is this a this is a dandelion tea? That's right. Ah, what what do you like about dandelion tea? I like that it's a little bit like coffee. Uh, it's kind of a little bit. It's dark and it's brewy. Like it feels a little. It has some notes in common with something like a like a stout, like yep. a. A stout beer. I'm going to take the mic off the stand because I'm a comedian. You should. Um, you should do that. But uh, I'm having black tea, just straight black tea in a cup, which is a very nice cup. That's because you gave me these yes. cups. <laughs> that was yeah, a that, that was, was a self compliment yeah. boomerang. That I love was it. Me just just setting you up to give me a compliment for having good taste in teacups. I love I love giving compliments and getting them. I think if I ended up as a bajillionaire, I would collect nice teacups. Yeah, I think that that would be a very suitable collection for you. But would you be able to stay still? Having a large collection of teapots would mean that you would have to have like a a premises to keep them. That's true. I have been living out of a suitcase for so long. I do genuinely get slightly panicky if I think I couldn't pack my house in about half an hour. Yep. And get out. And I don't know how much of that is like Holocaust epigenetics and how much of that is Buddhist desire not to have too much stuff. Who can who can say? Sort of a reverse a reverse Marie Kondo. It gives me joy to get rid of stuff or to not acquire stuff. I quite enjoy going to shops and not buying things. Oh, you yeah. sort of that that's that's an interesting twist on the condo premises because I am someone who is very ensconced in their premises and mm. have we've been here for ten years in this and this studio that we're in right now is quite new. Yeah, but. We've been living here for 10 years. And the reason that we're in the studio is because we've had a baby. And it's a, be- a great baby. It's I was pretty- going to say the best baby, but my twin brother has had a baby. so Yeah, it's you know. top top two babies. Yeah, it's right up there. It's a very happy baby. Yeah. 
part of having a baby is that you must believe that your baby is the cutest baby. Well, yeah, otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. We, we, we sat in the mother's group and there's like 24 people mm. with 24 babies and we were just sitting there going like, our baby's the best baby. Yeah, there's I'm no sure doubt about every it. Every single one of those other 24 people were like, clearly, our best, our baby is the best baby. That's true, and I, I think that it would be, it would be horrible if some of them weren't thinking that. Yeah, because you have be to. Sad. It would be, it would be. So it's, it's a fascinating process, but becoming ensconced and like attaching yourself to a place like a limpet can can be good. I think you can have, you can have, uh, you can really establish a kind of a framework for like, this is where I am. And I, I kind of like that. Yeah, I like that too. I, I admire that. I don't think I like it for myself so much. Mm. Uh, but I, I like it when you go to a place and it's clearly a shell of a person. You know, that's it's somebody's snail shell. It's their own. It's their <laughs> selfhood. And, you know, I've, I've lived on my own at various points and very much felt like uh, that's my... It's not even my place. It's my clothes, and yeah. I mean that in the sense of I take my clothes off immediately when I walk in the front door to the point where if I invited someone over for tea, I would walk in the front door and I would find myself just unhooking my bra as I walked in and then like, oh, no, that's not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you you want to have, I feel like the, the uh, metaphor of having like a nest or a shell is appropriate, but... Yeah. You've got to be careful, I think, how you say that because then you can say it sounds very much like you're becoming a shell of a person because <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be a shell of a person but you, I, I, I feel like this house is like quite – Annie and I feel like it's our – it's like an extension of ourselves at this point. Yeah, and I, I mean that in – I think it can go both ways. I think for some people they substitute the, the house and the things in the house for – themselves for their personality for they think if they have a nice enough stuff then they're a nice enough person in in Mm, a way I think it can be it can work in both ways if you're a you can be a person who likes things and likes building a world around yourself and likes opening that world to other people because it's a very nice thing to do to invite someone into your space that's quite an intimate thing to do but at the same time you can go to someone's house and it can have all the nicest shit in the world and feel like Sterile, yes, for sure. Particularly those kinds of houses where people seem to have designed in their mind they want it to be a house that leaves a particular impression, you know, or or has a particular aesthetic that describes you rather than just having that emerge naturally. Again, to, like, overextend the analogy that we're going with, it's like somebody who's always performing and you get a bit much. You're like, just calm down, stop being yourself and just be yourself like yeah yeah I agree when you you need to when you I have several friends who are performers and they're it's like if they're always on it's exhausting and often the reason that you're friends with them in the first place is because you know that behind the mask there is someone who's great and you just want them to drop the act and just kind of can we just relax and hang out and then sometimes with some performers there is no there there (laughs) Yeah, that's an unfortunate reality. But um, yeah, to, I don't know that I actually introduced myself and the stuff that I do no, properly. Yes, so what I do is, yeah, so uh, I run, a, I have a band called Papa Fire 
Uh, mm-hmm. That's also the name of the podcast that I run, mm-hmm. which which is called Papa Fire Works It Out. And yeah, I write songs and I perform. So uh, and then I guess as a as a co pro, this is a roast tea with Alice. Co pro, <laughs> I like that. I like that that you've got you've done so many that you have a little a little. Uh, what do you call it? Not a, it's not an acronym. It's a shorthand. You've shorthand, got, yes. You've got shorthand for a co-production. Indus, industry That's, language. Yeah. Bullshit. We see you and I have, it's not certainly not the first time that you and I have done a show together of any kind. We've no, done, keep, okay, let's, let's do yeah, it yeah, this yeah. way. You tell more things about what you do because you have a great career. <laughs> do I? That's yes. Even describing, even using the word career I think is a lot, is a lot because... The things that I've done have been almost deliberately obscure. So I guess I've been... You call that a great career? It's a deliberate artistic choice. Perhaps. Not a failure of effort. Well, I don't know because I feel like it's it's maybe a failure of... It's maybe an internal fear, not so much a failure, but it's an internal fear of actually trying to, like, legitimise my art. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so probably the context in which I've performed the most and... The work that I've done that's most that I'm most proud of occurs at festivals like Burning Man, mm. where I will show up um, and then perform for people, and I do a little thing called like a musical restaurant where I offer people like a menu mm. of music, and then it's almost like a one-on-one or like a small group of people that I'll perform for it at once, and then they can go through my menu or I can make something up for them on the spot. And I've done that in various other contexts. I've like performed at the Sydney Fringe, and I've um, you know gone to other more legitimate festivals and booked and and also had a band where I've played many a show and played in warehouse venues, both legitimate and illegitimate. Yeah. And I've done reason. I did. I did some. What do you mean is illegal? Yeah. I, what I mean is illegal as well. Um, yeah, and which is something that I'm that I'm passionate about because for me that's. Like my form of activism is putting on parties in places where technically they're not supposed to happen and yet they're wonderful and the powers that be have nothing to do with them. There's no pokies, there's no um, corporate sponsorship. It's just the purity of like people in a community getting together in a large space and going wild for a while, which is something that as a culture shouldn't be unusual, but it is. Unfortunately, yeah, I think it's important just to backtrack for a little bit of a footnote. Pokies are poker machines. It's a big problem in Australia, <laughs> particularly in Sydney because of corruption in the real estate industry, yes. uh, which is, and, and in the local government and in the state government where they will, uh, everything is supported by gambling. Yeah, we, this is, in Sydney, and New South Wales has the highest number of poker machines, yeah. just like anywhere, yeah. not, not even per capita, which it is still in, in, we are number one per capita. And also we have more than Vegas. It's totally crazy. The reliance that Australia has on gambling, but now we've gone a, a huge sidebar. Yeah. Back to the, back to the thing, <laughs> you putting on illegal Yeah. So, so I guess that's just kind of my bio is that, um, yeah, I put on shows, I write shows, I perform shows. I, you know, made a show with a friend of mine uh, called Odette who is a an incredible drummer and part of a crew called Junkyard Beats. We made a show called Taste Like Music and put on a show in Hibernian House, which is like a beautiful underground space in, in uh, Sydney CBD. And, yeah, so that's the kind of, if, you know, in a nutshell, I'm very hard to pin down. I'm not particularly well-known 
in a, like a professional capacity as a muso or a performer. But it's the chances are if you've gone to Marrickville warehouse parties in Sydney, you've probably seen me because I've that's where I operate. And how much of that as a choice in maybe a body of art that you've created, how much of that choice do you think has been driven by your love of that kind of um, subcultural stuff and your desire to kind of do that? How much of it is a sort of a fear of going mainstream and a fear of the failure if you try to legitimise yourself and how much of it is a feeling that if you were legitimate it would be selling out? Oh, wow. Can I... Can I, I, I love... I want a pie chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We see... There's a bit. That, there's a bit of yours that I really love, which is um, where you talk about being a percentage of uh, something. Like you're seventy percent Buddhist and thirty percent um, atheist, or whatever. Like, and so I, I hear all of those things, and I feel like it's definitely a pie chart that includes all of those things in significant proportions. Mm. Um, I'd say at least half of it is that I just love this shit. Mm. I absolutely love. I pretty much owe the current form of my interactive art that I most love to do, the, st- the thing that I most love to do in the world is to walk up to a, a group of people, one person or a group of people, who are essentially unsuspecting, like with a guitar or with a looper, and kind of say, hey, do you feel like some music right now? Would you, have you ever ordered from a musical restaurant? And then just like go through the whole process with them as they kind of go like, what, musical? Re-? And then you ha- I have a menu that I hand them and then it's all kind of like you know, having that experience with someone is lovely because I loved discovering that for the first time, which happened at Burning Man in 2013 when I went for the first time. Um, I had been busking on the street in all these various cities because Annie and I were travelling on the way to Burning Man. And then when I got to Burning Man, I thought, okay, cool, this is, this is, I'll just do the same thing. I'll be busking at Burning Man. And I'd made a little record and I thought the whole idea was I'm going to give away copies of my record and then busk at Burning Man. But it made no sense. Once you get to Burning Man, there's like, it, instead of a normal city where there's people going to work and people who are in suits, everybody's like, you know, nude or they're wearing leather or just people are completely free. And the vehicles that are driving around are like giant octopi that shoot flames. And so you don't, you're not culturally interesting. You're actually just competing culturally with all this fascinating stuff. And so busking, if anything, reminds people of the real world mm-hmm. where there's this, all this insane stuff happening. So I just thought, well, busking makes no sense here. Also, there's no money at Burning Man. So like having a, <laughs> having a hat, and but that's never why I busked anyway. I, I wanted, mean, if you've got a hat, you should wear it. <laughs> That's right. And you're in the middle of the (laughs) desert. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to actually take some time to figure out what's going on here before I start doing my thing. And then I was walking around and I went past this camp and they had a menu of hugs and they said, hey, would you like a hug from our menu? And I was like, that's wonderful. And so I ordered a cinnamon roll hug, which was lovely. And then, yes, go on. What is a cinnamon roll hug? Well, it's very hard to describe. Uh, but, and in fact, I won't even try. It's a group hug experience mm-hmm. that bears some kind of resemblance to the delicious cinnamon scroll, cinnamon roll type thing. If, if you've never had a cinnamon roll, it's like a, it's like a circle, you know, it's like a concentric, it's like a spiral of pastry with like sultanas and stuff. Anyway, yeah. so it's, it's like a group hug spiral experience, describing it more than that. Like I'm at the center and like so a whole chain of people is holding hands and then they wheel around you and you become the centre of this like spiral of people that are all 
hugging you. I think that is fascinating because when you said a hug menu, I was thinking surely at least part of the experience of a hug is uh, an exchange of energy and an interpersonal individual chemistry that, uh, that, I mean, you could have, I I guess, a certain level of uh, personalization within that, of of kind of um, menu items within that. Like I want an intense hug or I want a hard hug or I want want an passionate hug. Like on the menu is some stuff like... um, Relative returning from a long trip at the airport yeah. hug. Like that, they have stuff like that. So they have like a bear hug, relative returning from the airport hug. Um, there's like all sorts of like theatrical things, but they have to, it's divided in two. So they have an individual hug column and then a group hug column. And the other thing about the, the hug menu experience that I had is that there is an official place called the Hug Deli where they do this. But these people were just in their own camp and they'd made their own menu. Mm. And the Hug Deli is somewhat controversial at Burning Man because they have prices for their hugs. Like, so they say individual hug, one compliment, and then group hug, two compliments. And I've always given them shit about it because there's, it's not supposed to be transactional, the gifting at Burning Man. And so it feels very transactional to kind of... Anyway, but that's yeah, a whole... Yeah, the transaction of a hug is within itself. Yes, exactly. It's the process of exchange of whatever it is that you're exchanging in a hug. And, and also the way that it works is you order the hug and then you give the compliment before you give get the hug, which is really weird. Paying up front. Exactly. I mean. so, so there's lots of... So the official hug deli I have some issues with, and this is like getting... A, into a really deep sidebar about also burning makes it man. harder to do the compliment because if you do the hug then the compliment then you can just compliment them on the hug exactly <laughs> I agree I agree so it's strange and I have beef with the official hug deli despite the fact that it was a hug delicatessen like as in someone who's copying the exact same idea or maybe they came up with a first and then these guys got like a lemonade stand style thing and like an actual official presence but anyway regardless I had this amazing experience which was like a menu based experience mm. and I thought well, that's wonderful. Um, I'm totally just going to steal this idea and do it for music because I often was thinking, you know, I really want a way to engage with people in a in a consensual way because I'm sure you've seen this with performers who, like, go out into a comedy crowd and they just pick someone and it feels almost like a victim mm. like because it's very hard to say no. You have a lot of power as a performer to, like, get people up and make them do weird things because there's, like, this pressure of who the performer is and they're under the lights and they're in oh, control because yeah. they're amplified. People, I don't think performers realise how much of a big deal it is for people to be put in the spotlight and even if you ask them, if you even if you're asking for volunteers or you ask someone to volunteer an answer, if you then drill in on it, they feel very hard done by. Yeah. They feel exposed. And so I was looking for a way which is like a consensual invitation to engage with someone because if I come up to someone and say, hey, do you feel like some music right now? And they say no, it's like, cool, all right, let's, well, get out of here. But... So it was just perfect. I was like, this thing is glorious because it has everything that I'm looking for, which is like a consensual way to invite people into, you know, a kind of interaction and a performance because I also don't like, I've never liked feeling like that person at a party who like brings a guitar and it's like, oh God, I guess we're all going to hear from this guy. Like (laughs) the, the idea that you just kind of show up and it's like you assume that people are going to want to hear your shit. It's Mm. like, I don't think, I think that comedy, I've always had a great admiration for the way people run comedy rooms Mm. 
because no, you know, you can do like a casual joke telling, but nobody says at a party, like everybody shut up and listen to this joke. Um, unless you're a sociopath, that does happen. That does happen. I mean, there are ways to dominate a conversation or become the performer in a circle, but yes, yes. I know what you mean. Um, and so it's more of an open forum. Yeah. I think comedy generally is more of an open forum or more of an exchange than music is traditionally. Yeah. Unless it's a sing along. Yes, that's right. Um, and because the laughter is a response, at least a form of response. And, and, Comedy, proper comedy nights also fully understand the reverence that you need to people's attention. Like you need to husband it. You need to kind of engineer the entire room to pay attention. And as someone, as a muso who really likes engaging with people, beyond, even just be between songs and beyond like just the song, um, I really like that because music so often is like a background noise where you know you can come and go and people are getting drinks or whatever and it's just like a a loud raucous bar for example Mm. where you know paying attention to the music is optional and that's fine but the thing that I always liked as a performer is like engaging with people whose attention that you've earned and that are locked in on you because you can take people on like a journey and so anyway that's that's kind of why I'm so passionate about burn culture and Burning Man culture because part of what makes Burning Man so special is that that's not an accident. Like the fact that people are coming up with this stuff is part of like a 30-year history of people creating this event around having these special kinds of experiences where people turn up mentally prepared to, to be generous and to be inventive and to be immediate and in, in curating an, uh, an atmosphere like that, it's, very, it's a very fine line you walk between sort of fascistic control over people's behaviour and making it sort of a generative kind of nurturing environment that brings out that behaviour. Exactly. You know, there's, to sort of bring back the, the comparison with a comedy night, there's a difference between the comedians who invite laughter and the comedians who demand laughter and are furious that you don't deliver it? Yes, 100%. And so, yeah, having having this... And that's because I had that experience that so fundamentally changed my relationship to my own work. Mm. Um, I feel like I owe a debt of gratitude to, you know, Burns and Burning Man and Burning Seed and I've gone back many times and contributed to like the culture and the community. So I'm performing at the Burning Man decompression this weekend, you know, and it's like, I, not only do you not get paid, but you pay for a ticket to be at this thing. And so it's kind of backwards. And it's like, as a way to take yourself seriously as a performer, it can definitely give you, if that's the path that you've chosen, which is the path that I've taken, it's like, well, how sensible is this as a modus operandi where you, you not only don't get paid, but you pay for the privilege of turning up to these things and doing the thing that you love to do. Well, n- 96%, I think, of performers in Australia have a day job. Yeah, for sure. So as far as, like, the economy of, of art is, um, in, in Australia at least, it's... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not. For it. I'm certainly. Not, I'm. It's not. You know, having a day job is not something I'm ashamed of, or that I no, feel no. like. I no, mean, no, yeah, yeah, that's a, a reality, and I think yes. acknowledging it as a reality is important. Yeah, for sure. Um, but 
you, we were getting on the percentages of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I'm, this is a very long winded answer. My apologies. <laughs> but so yeah, it's at least half that I love it. And then the other, the other um, elements, which are how much of it is fear that I won't succeed and how much of it will be fear that I'm selling out. It's probably at least, you know, 25% each because I feel like um, part of the reason why I haven't made the leap to like quitting my day job or at least substantially reducing it. Firstly, I've just had a kid. So in the, like I've got an excuse for the last 18 months at least. But prior to that, it was just inertia. It was just feeling like perhaps I hadn't, um, you know, I, that my art wasn't of sufficient value to myself. And also a lot of things like being sceptical that um, the music industry in, in particular is like, why would it want me? You know, like I'm a balding, graying, like 30-something dude. Um, you know, maybe I've, maybe I've written a song or two, but it's like, who cares? Um, and I think, though, that's changed for me for a couple of reasons. The first is that my band, like, split up. For, for a variety of reasons. Is it an amicable split uh, or was it a... It was more a kind of um, sort of decimation by circumstance, um, whether they're like individual, you know, individual people leaving the country, um, individual people like deciding not to return phone calls <laughs> and being, <laughs> being like completely standard musical personalities. Um, and then within that completely standard musical personalities, there's like mental health problems. And so in that constellation, the whole thing fell apart. And that was a big part of like the engine of my creativity. And then having that kind of uh, become a vacuum was, was a bit hard. And then deciding that I was going to keep soldiering on, on my own. Um, yeah, and... But now, I mean, the decision to keep soldiering on on your own is a decision in itself that your art is worth something. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like the change in my life circumstances, like having a kid, um, having a beautiful family, and 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 also one of the things that happened after my band, which was like a loud hip hop rock and roll type experience, um, once that crumbled, and I got back to just playing guitar and writing songs. Um, on my own, I sort of had shed a lot of the baggage that, you know, songs needed to be in a particular genre and like a particular performative level of like intensity. And so now I'm just writing these beautiful acoustic songs that are about my beautiful wife and my beautiful child. And it feels like it's perfect. And I'm really proud of the stuff that I'm writing. I'm more proud of the work that I've been producing um, now and I've just finished a record which will be the first of I've got like a, absurd amounts of material that I'm really looking forward to producing and this studio is now like fully <laughs> ready and raring so it's exciting times and I feel I feel like the other thing that I've shared is just the expectation that that anyone should care like I and I'm just going to be putting this stuff out there and releasing it obviously hopeful that people will respond to it and, and listen. And I, I'm sure that they'll, you know, I've, I've just pressed 150 records and I'm, I'm positive. I know that I'm going to sell them. Like it's just, I know that there's enough people who have, who have expressed interest in my stuff over the years that it's like, that's, they're not going to hang around. And the, the whole idea behind what I want to do with putting it out is just simply they, 
they cost this much to produce. If I can get X amount of dollars that covers that, then I'll put out the rest of the music for free. That's just the whole concept behind the release that I'm going to do, which is which is nice. I think that's a kind of nice balance. That's a nice balance. I do sort of the same thing but the other way around. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, in that I, I put my stuff up on my Patreon so that people subscribe at the $5 level. They get all of my stuff yep. for that amount of money. And then if they want to stay on board, they can. If they want to sort of continuously support me after that, they can. A lot of people come on at the level to get access to the stuff and then at the end of the month they'll drop down or sometimes uh, they'll go up at the end of the month and yeah but that so for me it's it's that I put out a lot of stuff for free like a lot of yeah. all my podcasts are free uh, I put up a, you know a few clips I should do more of that but I'm so self-conscious uh, <laughs> my head uh, and then you know I, so I, I think we are all negotiating that balance right of, of how much we should give away how much we want people to see what we do and make it as easy to get for people. I also have a thing, if you can't afford it, just email me and we'll figure something out. Yeah. Because I don't want people to feel like they are precluded from engaging with work that I think is good. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a very sensible way to go about it. And when you, I mean, and now I, if, if this is amenable, if you're amenable to this, mm. I would like to start flipping the script and asking you the questions. Yes, absolutely. Because as someone who, you know, we did community radio together for yes, a long time. Did. Late nights. Yes. And so, it, we, you know, we had the... We, we had this like called Track Suits. Yes. We did uh, tracks on a theme. My God, my own phone is ringing. That is so embarrassing. Hang it it's, up. It's my mother, so... You can talk to My apologies. Um... So we did tracksuits where we suited tracks to a theme. That's right. I <laughs> repeatedly got notes from the production that I should sound less sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we clearly had different agendas. I mean, I was into the whole um, radio, like pr- being a music presenter. Yeah. And I really liked FBI. And and you were just like, well, I like bantering. Like, I'm a comedian. I don't really care that much about music. Yeah, well, not specifically, uh, I... My musical tastes are not modern. I, I don't. Yeah, when I, 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 that's. I'm sorry. That's a terrible way to phrase it. It's not that you don't care about music. You don't care about the particular music that this uh, youth community station in Sydney, because it's. It was. You know, like dedicated to quite obscure. Yes, and which I liked and approved of. But I think yes. our roles in the uh, duo were: you were the expert, and I was the. Um, Destabilizing influence? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't peg you as that. Not destabilizing. More. More. You were. You were amusing, like that. Which is. Which is what we all need. But given that we have that much shared history, like we, you know, we went to uni together. We did the arts review together. We did sorry, the, the law review together. We did the law, we did the law review together. together. Genuinely, I have to attribute an argument I had with you. Um, during the law review, uh, when we were both in the executive committee of the law review, uh, with making me realise how important comedy was to me. Wow! Because uh, I don't, I don't get angry very easily, uh, or annoyed, or frustrated very. I don't express frustration. I'll sort of internalise it. It was, a, it was a sketch. It was a video sketch, and it was about a thing. And I, it, it was a high production value to it, but the joke wasn't good enough. 
And I, I remember slamming my fist down on the table, saying it's just not funny enough to justify. And uh, you were saying, oh, we've put all the work in, it's already done, all of that stuff. And I slammed my fist down on the table and thought, I have never slammed my fist down on the table in my life. I've never... I've never been that emphatic about, but I was so sure I was right and I had mm. this strong opinion and I don't have a lot of strong opinions. I'm quite, I quite, you know, I quite like to see everyone's point of view. And I thought, oh, this must be important to me. It was sort mm. of a revealed preference thing in that moment. So Yeah, uh, well, I don't know. I, now that I remember that situation, I'm not sure how thrilled I am. <laughs> but I, I'm glad we. I'm glad we're not describing the yeah, video. Let's no. let's let's not. Um, I think history's come down on my side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I completely, <laughs> I completely agree. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, we need to. You need to. We need to hash this out with Hugh Aiken. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a beautifully put together video. I just didn't think there was enough joke in there. Sure. And the, the joke wasn't worth it. But uh, rather than relitigate that argument, which history has firmly, you have decided that you were you that you won. <laughs> I completely concede. Um, uh, yeah. So, but, so we did the reviews together. That's right. We did community radio together. Yes. And then and then this is but this is the this is the thing why I wanted to why I love chatting to you is because two paths diverged in a wood and I went down the one which is staying a lawyer and kind of performing on the side and the road less travelled is the, like, let's ditch law and go hell for leather doing the thing that I love. And as someone who, um, yeah, just has a great passion for the the craft that I do, which is music and writing songs and performing and stuff. I think that's incredibly brave to have done that. And there's just no way other word, but it, which one's envy and jealousy? Is is it like jealousy? There's, there's, there's the one where you wish the other person didn't have it. Yeah. And there's the one where you wish you had you wish that well. you had it as yeah. well. Yeah. Cause I, my, I can't remember which is which. I'm sorry, Look, but but I, my but my version of that is I I I, I think it's envy or is mm-hmm. it yeah it's envy. I think jealousy is like know. you don't want them to have it anyway. I, whichever it is, it's the one that's less bad. <laughs> it's the one which is it's like I I think it's so wonderful that you that you did that and you've had such great success. And there's just a huge part of me which is like. I'm. I've. I feel like not making that leap was a huge mistake for me, and and not. And that doesn't mean that it precludes me from doing it in the future. And it's something that. And you know, blah blah blah. But I, th- I think it's a nice narrative, and it's one that is uh, very straightforward and easy to buy into. But I couldn't have taken the other path, so I didn't choose to quit the law. I couldn't have survived in that. I would have had to either change fundamentally as a person or I genuinely, I was waking up every morning slightly sub-suicidal, like just waking up thinking it would be better not to be alive if this is what life is. Mm. I couldn't have lasted. Um, in that, like Particularly in that very corporate environment, we both went to the same law firm and you know yep. what that was like. But So that's one element the second element is that when I quit the law, um, I was not in a good way. Mm. And comedy is something that you can do that is very modular. It's It takes as much effort as you put into it. Um, the process of getting better involves being bad at it, uh, which I found very appealing. Um, 
as someone who was sort of crippled by that weird thing that you get as a kid of, oh, you've got so much potential. So doing something that I knew I was bad at but cared cared about but could get better at, that was a way of doing it. And when I quit the law, I was thinking, oh, I'll do something else. And this is just in the meantime. And then the cards fell out my way. I started to realise that there were people who liked specifically what I did and that what I was doing was different from what other people were doing. And even if I wasn't the best at it, even if I wasn't good at it, I thought it was important that that kind of work should be out there and important enough that I should keep doing it. Mm. If I was the only option, you know, there's, there's, there's no good captain of this ship, but I can at least try to steer it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a sort of a nice thing to say that I, I quit the law and I made this amazing decision. It, it really was very um, pragmatic, survival-based. Mm. Like it wasn't as much of a risky, cool, courageous rebel move as it sort of seems to be considered, particularly it's, by my friends who have day jobs. It's so, yeah, it's so hard to accept that uh, lack of courageousness explanation while you're wearing that jacket. That's a very cool rebel jacket. It's got, a, <laughs> it's got good zips on it. It you does know. have good zips on it. Your daughter yeah. loves these zips. Yeah, no, my daughter does love the zips. I think that that's, that's a very appropriately humble and modest way to deflect the compliment. <laughs> but you've... you've you know, there, there's there's a less there's a lesson there. I mean, I suppose also a lack of imagination. It didn't occur to me once I failed out of the law, or as I as I thought of it as failing, I couldn't hack it. That's very much the narrative you get fed while you're in those places. Um, it just never occurred to me to do something else, <laughs> to apply for another job, or to do a different career, or to see some other thing. I just thought, oh well, I I'm not I can't work in this way. I need to be able to work in a way that, you know, mm. and I work harder now than I ever did at the law firm. Oh, but there's the, 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 hard, the hard work of, um, in, uh, the hard work within the spectrum of something that you enjoy doing doesn't, doesn't have the same quality of torture, that hard work in a place where it's not, you're right, you know, it's not something that you identify with and you know that you're in the wrong yeah, place. Yeah, the difference between, I think, seeing horses run for the joy of it free in a field and, uh, you know, horses race each other. That's a thing that they do. Yeah. It's one of the things that people use to justify horse racing as an industry. They like to do it. Yes. I don't think they like to do it in circles surrounded by people screaming at them while someone hits them with a stick. That's true, yeah. Um, and also in, a, in circumstances where they get, they get knackered, in the literal use of that phrase, yeah. if they're not good at it enough. Because I feel like in the wild, if you like, you know, a horse loses, you know, loses a race against a faster an horse. Years ago, and I would like to track it down because I don't like to give facts without citing them, even though I always do. Um, it was about the fact that there are a couple of young lawyers every year who die of mm. pneumonia, specifically of pneumonia, which. In, in, in Sydney, which is to say there are enough young lawyers working so hard that they get sick, working so hard through the sickness that they get pneumonia and leaving it so long that in a first world country with free health care and a free emergency health service that they're so bad that they die. And this is people in their 20s, so they're fit young people. 
yeah. work themselves to death. And I think it's like, what, st- like statistically one or two a year, not massive numbers, but if you think about the numbers behind yeah. that number... That's the tip of a very despair, like an iceberg of despair. the tip of a lot of very sick people mm. who are working themselves that hard in a way. Yeah, it's... I mean, I certainly... I, I certainly shared your escape from Alan's. Like, yes. I didn't... Oh, we're allowed to say the name. I've never... Well, I mean, I... Look, I think Alan's was a, a good version of that corporate world. It wasn't... Um, it, no, cer- certainly there were, there were things that I enjoyed about it. There were pe- there, the velvet glove. There are people there that I um, loved. I mean, yeah, I... Um, your brother, good your, people. Your brother worked there. Um, Nick Mendoza-Jones worked there. Linda yeah. Thompson worked there. Yeah, yeah. So it was full of wonderful... Lassen worked there. Yeah. Uh, it was full of wonderful people, um, most of whom, I think all of whom that I know, um, parachuted out long and long ago. And, and I was one of the... I, you know, I was one of the first. I worked there as a paralegal during uni and then, defer, and then worked as a clerk and then... And then I got a graduate offer, but never went back. I, I did I did other work, and I'm definitely. Um, well, I think that is the thing. That's my beef, not with that um, particular place, but with the structure of the industry. Yeah. The structure of the industry is that there's a certain amount of partners who share in the profits of the business. Yeah. And a lot more people working for them than can ever be partner. They lure you along with the offer of partnership, but the nature of how it has to be in order to work as a system is that three-quarters to nine-tenths of the people who start working there have to go. Yeah. And the way that they go is to burn them out. Yeah, of course. And the, the, the internal rhetoric is such that it's not like you're free, go from here, be better. It's, oh, you can't hack it. Yeah, yeah. And so there's reams of people who are recruited for being bright and brilliant and diverse and thoughtful and having all sorts of interesting things in that, you know, you don't just get in on marks, you get in on having a life and being cool and interesting and, and acting and or doing musical instrument at a high level or being an athlete or have they bring in these people and then... The, the system, the way that it's structured is deliberately ruinous. Yeah. And they leave feeling defeated rather than elevated. Yes. And that's my beef with it. Of course. Um, and, yeah, I, I agree. The whole – that's kind of why I, I knew that early as soon as I was um, – as soon as I was there, I smelt that it was, you know, a kind of vortex of, of pain and – it was not a bad job to do during uni, but I knew that I couldn't get, you know, get there or go there as an adult and kind of be be in that um, field of people who are racing towards this this goal, this illusory goal. But um, I feel like there's my problem with the law now, as someone who works in it, is I, you know, have ideal working conditions, but the thing that makes it hard is I work in personal injuries where I've got clients who have, you know, bad backs and knees and they've been in car accidents or work accidents and effectively they're in pain and the only form of help that I can offer them is like a three, you know, three to five years of fighting an insurance company to get a payout at the end. And that's great. And getting people, you know, getting people through that process 
is satisfying, but I just feel like it's not a direct form of help. It's not a direct enough form of help. Well, and to a certain extent, the fact that you offer that help or that you need to offer that help is in, in itself a bit of an indictment of the system or of the structure of our yeah. society. I mean, this I, every time I see one of those oh, bloody Kickstarters for someone's health costs, particularly <laughs> right, in America, yeah. oh, thank you, we've raised... Eighty or ninety thousand dollars to help this poor three-year-old child with her brain cancer, and you mm. go, "What?" Yeah, that that shouldn't. That's yeah. not a victory. Yeah, that that's is... right. It's yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so it's it's a recipe for depression, I think. Yeah, and that's when you're working in that way where you are um, disengaged as an agent from you're, you're just you're just part of this process and the process is hideous but the people who made the process don't have to participate in it and the process benefits I mean the thing sorry keep no no that's okay look I feel I feel like I want to jump off this topic because it's It's too it's too close to my it's too close to home and it's part of this is is the reason why I just want uh, the one thing that I want to say other than the reason why that you want to launch out into your art is that the reality of <laughs> with these kind of complicated processes, we all we're living in a world where people have very extreme, open, straightforward opinions about things. And my podcast is meant to kind of break down that idea. The more you can have an opinion about something, and then the more you look into it and realize all of its parts and moving pieces and incentives and so on and so forth, uh, you realize actually maybe it is the best possible system and you know what I mean there are reasons that that system is as convoluted and complex as it is absolutely Uh, and I I often find I find that uh, grounding Mm. well I mean the the my the concept of my podcast is very similar like the you know works it out is about that very thing it's but it's also the idea of work is like a Hannah Arendt's idea of work which is, you know, like the, the cultural products that we all make. And so how does Good art... Good use of citation. How does, art, how does art work in your life? Um, how, do, how does work, how does financial work work in your life? Um, and, and, you know, ex- get to the bottom of ideas and how do they work? So I, I'm fascinated by ideas um, and, and you, we clearly share that in common with, with both the things that One we like to talk about. One of the things that I like about you. But the thing that I wanted to get to with you was also this process of going from an up-and-comer to someone who has a special coming out on Amazon. And I want to hear... You described it off-air as Machiavellian, like the (laughs) the process by which this offer came to be. Because the other thing is that having heard that you were doing Savage, which is your first special in which I've seen several times and, in fact, became very familiar with because I filmed it way back in the day, like yeah. three or four years ago. Yeah, when I first brought it out. Yeah, that's right. And so I'm like intimately familiar with that show and I'm, I was so glad to hear that you were going to do it on a proper flat plum and have it filmed by someone that wasn't me because <laughs> I was like, my God, they're going to do such a, so much of a better job and I'm so glad that you never put out the, uh, the kind of very substandard uh, product that, I, that, I, that is what I managed to create with uh, my skills and what well, was on, on yeah, the table? Yeah, I mean, it, it was this thing. I um, I was recommended for this special. It's slightly above my pay grade, as it were. Um, I was recommended for it by Neil Gaiman, who listened to my trilogy, uh, which has Savage in it. And the reason he listened to my trilogy is because I gave it to him 
because I had him on my podcast, Tea with Alice, and we ended up talking for about six or eight hours. We had a really, you know, meeting of minds. He's now a friend. Uh, it's always really nice when you make a new friend and meet a new friend, and I'm talking to him. I was like, I want to show you what I do because I've, I've read novels of his, I've seen mm. work of his, and he'd shown me some of the early cuts of Good Omens, which, which is at that point. phenomenal. I just watched. Show running, yeah. So uh, good. So he showed me that and I said, oh, do you want to see my thing? Uh, and the reason that I had him on my podcast was because I had done a show, a lineup show with him, which was run by Andrew O'Neill in London, and it was a, um, it was a Victorian ghost stories night. And I, I'd asked to be on that night uh, and I had to leave early. I had to leave uh, at the halftime point. And uh, Neil was very busy with Good Omens at that time, so he was going to show up and do his spot and leave. Um, and whoever was in the spot where he arrived had to shift down in the running order. And so when he arrived, I was on last in the first bracket. He arrived... And Andrew turned to me and said, do you mind going first in the second bracket? And I said, I have to leave at half time. Uh, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry, we can't bump Neil. And I said, what if I just do five minutes? <laughs> what if I just do five minutes and then he can do his story? And then uh, we go and I asked him if that would be all right. And it was all right. Uh, and then I just, I just said... I said, I'll do my five minutes, I'll stay and watch Neil and then I've got to run off. And then I thought, I really would like Neil to see my stand-up. We were all in the dressing room and I said, this is the Machiavellian bit, is I said to Neil, I'm going to stick around and watch your stand-up. I'm just about to go up now. And I talked him, took his arm and talked and walked him to the back of the room and set up a chair and then I did my spot and then he did his spot. <laughs> So that's where it gets. That's where the Machiavellian causation chain is. Is that moment of I could have just dropped out of that night and just gone off. Um, I wouldn't. I would say that Machiavelli. I have. I've read The Prince, right? <laughs> and I've read it in Italian. And there's no bit in there which has any bit that's uh, as cute and harmless as that. <laughs> there are no. There was no fear involved. Yeah, look, no, Alice, you need to you need to pick another author. I mean, that's not it's not Machiavellian. That that that's like that's like sweetly yeah yeah yeah. That's like it's sweetly Austin. It's almost like Jane Austenish. <laughs> yeah. It's like that's level. That's kind of Emma level of like manipulation. But it's like but it's Emma it's, was a sociopath. <laughs> but it's not about. I actually never read it. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, she's oh, I'm, read it. She's <laughs> a sociopath for a significant, at least on the spectrum of sociopathy for a significant portion of the novel. She's redeemed. By I love. But, uh, well, the thing is, but it's the kind of matchmaker for, it's like kind of creative love. It's like, look, you're going to love what I do. Yeah. Mate, I feel like there's a good chance, you know, so it's like, give it a shot. Give love a chance. Get, you know, just, yeah. and so that level of manipulation, I think, which is, I would say, very, very, yeah, very, very beyond, very below, um, the, you know, the structure of political organisation and making a populist fear you. I mean, that's yes. that's, what, that's what the prince is really about. It's the going to the coffee shop you know they're going to be at, kind of. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I feel like that's a, yeah, um, maybe if Machiavelli had stuck around and written like the prince two and three, <laughs> um, um, then he would have got down to the granular level of uh, how, making people like your stand-up. But I do think creative work is like 
uh, like creative partnership is a, a form of love. Oh man, and that's why band breakups are so brutal. I mean, that's if if anyone has ever been in a band that's that's disintegrated for whatever reason. There's it's it's similar. It's it it has it certainly doesn't hurt as much, or it shouldn't. But it has a similar character to a romantic breakup because I think I have this theory about art, which mm. is that art is like human plumage. Yeah. So we have all this excess energy. And I think a way to demonstrate our intellect and our um, physical prowess in certain forms of art or like our dexterity, determination, all these sort of characters, characteristics can find form through art. Well, creative chemistry, I think, is a lot like love. When you meet someone who you're going to work with or you want to work with, you meet them, you click, you have that eight-hour-long conversation. You're like, this is amazing, you are amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is the process. You join a band, you're incredible, let's make music together. I think it's one of the reasons why uh, sort of... uh, why people who... So, for example, in a man-woman partnership, heterosexual partnerships are rare because there is an easier way to work out that chemistry. Ah, I see. That option I thought, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was saying man and woman creative partnerships are rare. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because I was, I was saying like heterosexual couples that... I know, I was like, it, tw- it, it, can't, it can't be, it can't be quite... I mean, somehow that, sometimes that might be how it feels in a heterosexual relationship. It's like the, the amount of cultural airtime discussing heterosexual issues has diminished greatly yes. which is all all for the better but no i agree with you it is it is, it is unusual rarer. it is un, it, it is rarer to see um and i don't think it is the same thing i think it can be mistaken for the same thing as romantic mm. chemistry it's they are parallel to one another well it's often within male female couples that make stuff it's often played with as like a will they, won't they type of thing. And the the dynamic is that there's that Venn diagram crossover in between romantic and creative partnerships that is I want to... I want to see what we would make together. Mm. I want to make the thing and I want to see what we would make together. There's something about... The, the other person that brings out something in you that you're interested in, that brings out something in them that they're interested in, that brings out the greater than the sum of their parts yes. thing. And whether that is an album or a weekend in Paris. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of depends either on the kind of the honour of each party or on the lack of availability of options. Mm. Yeah, that's... I mean. No, absolutely. I think that... It's that's a perfectly apt metaphor. And speaking of um, creative partnerships that are going to bear fruit, yes, it's probably time that we wrap this up and also plug the show that we're doing in Sydney. Yes, we are doing a show in Sydney. I'm doing a show in Canberra on the twentieth uh, of this month, and then I'm doing a show in Sydney with you. And I think those are the only shows that I'm doing while I'm in Australia. So amazing. So on Saturday, the twenty third of November, you and I are doing a show at. Uh, a warehouse in Marrickville. Yes. The way that you get to find out is if you go to my website, papafire.com, there's a link where you can buy tickets and then you will be told the venue. And there yes. is no... Now, I need to ask a question. Yes. Elle Frisch, who is a mutual friend of ours, yes. wants to know if it is an accessible venue. Now, I need to check that. Yes. I need to check that and I will check that. So at the moment, I'm uncertain, but I will... 
advise and I'll put that on the ticketing website. I don't even know where the venue is yet. I'll tell you. I know where it is. <laughs> They're very good friends of mine. It's a very lovely and beautiful space. Tell me on the day. Um, but this is, it's unfortunately a seemingly weird way to organise a show mm. because it seems like very secretive and, and unusual. But, you know, spaces like spaces like the, the warehouse where we're having this thing are, are precious. I mean, people live there. They are, if anything, like a culturally subsidised, unique creative space mm. because the people who live in these spaces sacrifice like their sleep, <laughs> their gigantic living rooms, like they go through um, something and they effectively do subsidise these spaces because they're a lot cheaper to hire because they are not you know, fully professional and have all the same regulatory and blah, blah, blah things that normal venues do. And so there's a wonderful thing about warehouses, which is that because they're not professionally staffed, you can just hang out in them after the show finishes instead of like sort of being ushered out because everybody wants to go home, like all the staff need to go home. You can actually just becomes it devolves back into just a giant living room. And there's such a lovely aspect to that. But the downside is that people have to ask questions like, where is it? Because we can't announce it. We can't announce it. Well, I'm also doing the Manly Boat Shed and the Oatly gigs, which is next week, Monday and Wednesday, but that'll be club material. There you go. Which is not what I do. That's right. So, so if you come want to see and see. Me do my job badly. <laughs> <laughs> come next Monday or Wednesday, I'll be doing headlining. And if you want to see me do my job well, come on the twenty third of November. Go to papafire.com and uh, book a ticket. Find out where it is. That's right. So that's wonderful, Alice. Thank you so much for having me on your show and also being on my show. Thank you for having tea with me and also letting me have tea with you. <laughs> okay, let's I gotta turn the turn the thing off now. Bye everybody. Bye. Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle, day. 
On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying damn you doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifles all, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifles all, lally rifles all.